Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Anglican priest in Nigeria. And I remember talking with him one day and he was sharing a story about a time whenever he, while he was a rector of a parish in the northern part of Nigeria. And if you know anything about Nigeria, that's the region where um, the extremist group Boko Haram has tried to gain power. You might hear on occasion of stories of, of school children being uh, taken hostage. And he was a priest in that area, and then after, uh, after liturgy one Sunday, he was cleaning up everything in the church, kind of putting things back into order. And he heard shouts and a jeep driving down the road towards the church. And he noticed... Um, extremist militants in the Jeep, and a machine gun on top of the Jeep. So he quickly locked the doors, and he said that he hid underneath the altar and prayed. Prayed that God would turn them away. Prayed that God would protect him. He said he could hear outside the shouts, and he could hear the doors open and the doors close as they left the Jeep and began walking towards the church. And he continued to pray. And then all of a sudden, he heard the doors close. And the Jeep drove off. Didn't know what turned them around. But he attributes, attributes it to, to God's protection. And I remember talking to him and thinking to myself and wondering, you know, what, what do you do after that? He said there's not much that he could do. The authorities aren't going to do a whole lot. I was like, so did you lead the liturgy the next Sunday? And he's like, of course. <laughs> and he continued to do that. I want to continue with some of my conversation with him towards the end, but this is something that uh, has kind of wrestled in my mind. When you're surrounded by death and destruction and chaos, how do you push forward? And I think that our passage today has something to say about that. If you look at the passage in, in the Gospel of Mark, it's kind of an interesting story. It's a dramatic story. It's a, a story that would, would uh, make a good episode in a miniseries. We have Jesus who was just teaching to the crowd, speaking in parables. And, and then he said to his disciples as they were by the Sea of Galilee, let's just get on a boat and head to the other side. And they set sail on the sea, and, and if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, uh, it, it's prone to rat, like freak storms that just pop up. 
From what I read is a lot of it has to do with the topography of the area. It's surrounded by, by steep hills and it actually sits below sea level. And, and, and so that kind of plays into the fact that just storms will whip up in the Sea of Galilee. But if you read this and pay attention to the narrative, I mean, this, is, this must have been a mother of storms. I mean, first of all, whenever you read it, it says that the waves were so high that they were crashing over the ship and filling the ship. Now, again, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, the term sea is kind of misleading. They don't use sea like we use sea. It's actually a big lake. It's not as big as the Great Lakes. Square mileage is about you know, maybe 100 square miles more than, bigger than Deep Creek, Maryland. I mean, so it's a big lake, but it's not a huge lake. And if you've ever been on a lake when a storm comes in, yes, the waves start getting big, but don't get that big. I mean, for the waves to be crashing over, this must have been a storm of the century. But on top of that, let's not forget who was on the boat. Many of the disciples were seasoned fishermen. They spent their entire life on the Sea of Galilee. Like, you know those boys have been through some storms in their life. They knew what to do. And yet this storm had them afraid for their life. That they were going to die. And then we get into this strange interaction. Let's be honest. When you read it, it kind of comes across odd. I mean, first of all, like I said, you've got seasoned fishermen, like frantically trying to bail out the boat, trying to get everything together, trying to keep them alive, and then you've got Jesus having a power nap. <laughs> and you've got to remember this. Jesus was not laying on a king-sized bed in the back of Jeff Bezos' 417-foot yacht, protected from the elements. Like, this is just a little rickety old fishing boat. And Jesus is sleeping. And then the disciples call out to Jesus. Don't you care that we're about to die? I mean, they got to be thinking, Jesus, we're doing everything we can to keep this thing afloat. And you're sleeping. This is when the weird part happens. It says that Jesus wakes from his slumber and doesn't join the frantic efforts to bail out the boat and try to make it to shore. Instead, he questions why they're afraid. Now, if I was one of those disciples, I would be like, for real, Jesus? <laughs> like, you see this storm, and you're asking me why I'm afraid. You should know this. And then, and then he asks them another question about their lack of faith. And then he rebukes the sea. It says, peace, be still. Actually, the, the Greek here should not be, I don't think it should be translated peace. I think um, the better translation is be quiet. So Jesus looks at the raging sea and essentially says, shut up and calm down. And the sea goes still. Now the question is, is as you look at the story, is what's actually happening here? What's this about? And often this, this story, whether it be in, in, in children's books or Sunday school classes or from the pulpit or devotionals, focuses on the storm and the disciples' faith or lack thereof. 
A lot of times it's understood and taught as if Jesus was laying there testing them, frustrated that they had so little faith that Jesus was going to protect them. The storms and the waves represent whatever hardship or trial you might have in your life. Augustine equated the, 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 the waves and the wind to temptation and persecution. Now, I think that there's an element of that within this, but I think that's secondary, not the primary meaning of these things. But the teaching goes that, that essentially that Jesus is showing the disciples that he will calm the storms and protect them. But they needed to trust him. Essentially, Jesus will calm the storms of your life, but you must have faith even if he delays for a while. It preaches good. It's encouraging. There's some truth to it. I just don't think that that's the point of this passage. I don't think that St. Mark recorded this event in the manner in which he did to communicate that to us. But I think one thing we need to know, or three things we need to know actually, to understand what's really going on here is the symbolism of a stormy sea, the significance of Jesus' rebuke, and then the reason for, for the disciples' fear and Jesus' slumber. So first, the symbolism of the stormy sea. In the ancient Near East, the sea always symbolized chaos, disorder, uncertainty, and destruction. Many of their creation myths were a myth of their, their great god, the Egyptians, Ra, came up out of the, the great abyss, which was a, a sea of chaos. But then God utilized that imagery that would have been familiar to the early Hebrew people and used it throughout the Old Testament. In the prophet Isaiah, we see that Isaiah depicts the wicked and the destruction that is caused as like the tossing sea. In Daniel 7, you have the prophecy of the four great beasts of the apocalypse that represented four great kingdoms that were in opposition to God that were going to rise up and bring chaos and destruction to God's creation. And those four beasts were born out of the sea. And this connection between the turbulent sea and the chaos that is in opposition to God, the destruction that is brought into his good creation is utilized in Revelation in which the new heaven and the new creation is said to be without any sea. That in the new creation, the sea will be no more. That's not because God hates water. It's not because God is opposed to the oceans that he created. It's because throughout history of scripture, in apocalyptic and prophetic literature, the sea represents chaos and destruction. And in the new heaven and the new earth, there will no longer be chaos but only order. No longer destruction. But more than that, if you look throughout scripture, and I'll just use a couple of examples, the power over the raging sea is frequently used as a depiction of God's absolute sovereignty. 
God's throne in multiple places is described as residing over the sea, showing that God alone, Yahweh, ruled over even the chaos that all the other gods were subservient to. Isn't it interesting in the midst of that, uh, that imagery of the ancient Near East that God in his, his sovereign brilliance chose to deliver, deliver Israel from Egypt, whose chief god Ra came out of the great void, the great sea, by showing his power over the sea, parting its potentially destructive waters so the Israelites could pass on dry ground. In Psalm 65, God's absolute power is, is poetically depicted by saying that He is the one who has caused the mountains to rise and can calm the raging sea. Psalm 89.8 says this, So Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And the psalm that we read today says, So when they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, He delivers them out of their distress. For He makes the storm to cease, so that the waves are still. See, when you understand the symbolism of the stormy sea, the raging waves, you begin to realize the significance of Jesus' rebuke. See, now, the disciples had seen numerous miracles up to that point. But many of the prophets of old had performed similar miracles. But then all of a sudden, Jesus does what any good Hebrew boy knows only God alone can do. Take authority over the chaos. With his word, calm the sea. And if you notice in this, this passage, Jesus doesn't pray. He doesn't make petitions to God and evoke God to, to calm the waves. It says that he just spoke and the sea listened. The powerful sea, the raging waves, and the gale force winds, the very thing that symbolized the uncertainty, chaos, and destruction that marked so much of human existence obeyed Jesus' words. The very thing spoken of in the Psalms that the disciples would have recited so frequently every Saturday during liturgy that promised and said that God and God alone would speak and the waves would listen, all of a sudden occurred right before their eyes through the simple command of Jesus. So it kind of makes sense of the question then that the disciples posed. Who is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And that question right there, I think, is, is the key to this passage. See, because this passage is not about, about the faith of the disciples or their lack of belief that Jesus will deliver them. It's not primarily about if we have faith, then Jesus can calm the storms of our life. This is about revealing who Jesus was. And the fact that the disciples still did not fully comprehend who they were dealing with. 
It was about revealing Jesus to be God incarnate, the creator of all that exists, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord and master of all that is. Which in turn changes everything about how one faces into the chaos, the destruction, and death that surrounds us in our current fallen moment. So we have the symbolism of the stormy sea, which helps us understand the significance of Jesus' rebuke of the winds and waves. And finally, the reason for the disciples' fear and Jesus' slumber. We read, Jesus asked, why are you so afraid? He's not asking that because he didn't know. And on surface level, you kind of know why. It's because of the big storm. But then he asked the second question, have you still no faith? And notice this is not a statement. It's not a, a direct answer to his question, but it gives, it gives us understanding of what he's getting at with his question. It pries into the deeper reality behind the somewhat rhetorical first question. See, because if, as you look into it, I think the real question was not why they are afraid of a horrible storm. I mean, if you're on, in a mini hurricane in a rickety John boat, it's kind of human nature to get a little bit afraid. I don't think that that's the question he was getting at. I think the question he was getting at was why they were afraid given who was with them. And paradoxically, I think the real answer to Jesus' first question is captured in the disciples' question. Who then is this? See, the reason for the disciples' frantic fear was rooted in the fact that they had no idea who they were dealing with. They had not yet recognized the fullness of who Jesus was. And it's interesting that once Jesus spoke calm to the destructive chaos, when he took authority over the wind and the sea, when he did that which none of the ancient deities even claimed to be able to do and did what the scriptures claimed only Yahweh could do, the disciples think God has sensed that Jesus is much more than a great prophet or a revolutionary political messiah. And when they began to realize just who Jesus was, scripture says, the passage says, that they were filled with great fear. I mean, picture this, the, the fear that must have been felt in the midst of that horrible storm. The storm of the century. The fear and the franticness that must have been happening. And then Jesus speaking to the, to the winds and the waves. And then all of a sudden, a glassy sea. Stars twinkling in the sky. And the disciples staring at Jesus filled with even greater fear than they had when the storm was raging. It reminds me of the fear that is depicted throughout the Old Testament when good Hebrews who have studied the awesomeness of God have their good theology about God worked out. They know their Bible. They know all these things. And then they get a glimpse of the glory of God and they are undone with fear. I don't know how much the disciples understood at that exact moment. But I think as they looked at Jesus, they might, might, must have gotten a sense at that point that God was before them. And they were filled with great fear. See, that's the thing. They were filled with great fear because they did not recognize that God incarnate was in their midst. 
that the one who rules the deep, who created the sea, the earth, the entire universe, the one who has authority over all things and at his very word brings order to chaos, stillness to destruction, was on the boat with them. They're filled with fear because they did not know who Jesus really was. And Jesus slept peacefully because he knew exactly who he was. So a lot of speculation on why Jesus slept. Was it to test them, to make a point? I don't know. But I knew that he was able to sleep peacefully because he knew who he was and who his father was. See, when we understand the symbolism of the stormy sea, the significance of Jesus' rebuke, and the reason for the disciples' fear, realize that this is all about revealing the fullness of who Jesus is. And the thing is, is recognizing the true nature, remembering the true nature of Christ means everything. A.W. Tozer once famously said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Anchors a lot of truth in that statement. Now, I don't like to rail on popular Christian culture. Okay, I shouldn't lie from the pulpit. I do like to. <laughs> but it's not a good thing. But I do have to say that, that I've noticed that there's a trend that has happened. And I think it's a desire to make God more approachable, to make Jesus more approachable. And so we, we minimize the awesome otherness of who he is. No offense if you got one of these, but... I remember a while back seeing like the Jesus is my homeboy shirt. And the thing is, is, is that yes, Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of man as a servant and then endured the cross, willingly took upon death so that we might be able to approach God. But that is only amazing, profound, and mind-blowing when we first acknowledge who he really is. The holy otherness and sovereign might of God Almighty. As we walk the often turbulent path of faith, I know I do, a lot of us can often fall into the trap of minimizing or forgetting the incomprehensible nature and sovereign power of our resurrected Lord who is at the right hand of the Father but is also intimately with us through his Holy Spirit. So that question, what comes to mind when you think of our Lord? What comes to mind? Is it a first century Hebrew homeboy? A miracle worker or an anthropomorphized, I can't say the word, anthropomorphized deity that is slightly greater than us that comes to mind? One who is as frazzled by the chaos of our day as we are and is hoping you and I can muster enough faith so he can help us out? Or when you think of our Lord... When we come to Him in prayer, approach His presence to be filled by Him through the sacrament of community, does the sovereign Lord of the universe, creator of all things, victor over all evil and chaos, the beginning and end, alpha and omega of all things come to mind? Because who you think He is will make all the difference.
So in closing, I just, what's this mean for us? I do think we often too quickly jump to, the lack of, to our lack of faith that Jesus will calm the storm, subdue the chaos, destruction, and uncertainty pressing in all around us as the reason for our paralyzing fear. And now I do think lack of faith in, in, in his ability does play into that. But the problem is, is that no matter how much faith you can try to muster, it doesn't mean that your ship will not sink. Notice the calming of the storm in res- was not in response to the disciples' faith. It was in spite of it. Jesus' calming of the storm was not about the disciples, their faith. It was about him revealing who he is. And the fact is that until God's sovereign purposes are complete, until his kingdom is fully established, until the new creation in which there is no more sea is established, the chaos and destruction ushered in by the fall will remain in part and not every storm will be subdued. Nor every raging sea calmed. Yes, in God's great mercy, often we are miraculously delivered that he, he, he calms the storm and frees us from the chaos and destruction ingrained in our fallen reality, but then at other times our, sink, our ship sinks. The chaos and destruction of our foreign world is allowed to remain. Things don't work out always as we had hoped for. Terminal illnesses are not always healed. Persecution sometimes leads to death. Loved ones don't repent. Stepping out in faith sometimes leads to our world around us collapsing. But as we face into the uncertainty and seeming chaos of our fallen world, and as the storms rise and the waves seem as if they will overtake us, it is essential that we realize the fullness of who we are dealing with. We're not simply dealing with a powerful miracle worker that heals illness, fixes finances, or provides a way when there seems to be none. We belong to the one who caused the mountains to rise and has established the billions upon billions of stars in the sky. The one who has authority over supernovas and, and the greatest of black holes. And who also crafted everything that exists down to the most minuscule quantum level the source of all life and the ground of all being. And this is the one who claimed you. This is the one who died for you. This is the one who says he will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the one who says he will be with you until the end. And this is the one who will raise you up in the end even if momentarily your ship has sank. So back to my friend who's a priest in Nigeria. I remember talking to him again about ministry in that, that region of Nigeria. And as we were talking, he shared with me a number of fellow priests in his diocese that were killed. And he didn't assume that God spared him because he had greater faith than they did. God had his purposes and he didn't know. But I remember thinking, how 
How could you show up? Each Sunday, when chaos and destruction is constantly pressing in to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments to his people. And as I thought about it, I realized that it ain't going to happen relying on the fact that if I have enough faith, Jesus will protect me. Because I'll be honest with you, even though the bishop ordained me last week, it's not because I have superhuman faith and it wavers a lot of times. So I'm really glad that I'm not going to have to trust in that. No. I think the only way is through a deep, continual recognition of the one we're dealing with. The full nature of the one who has called us and is right there with us. I know everybody in here has been through some storms or in the midst of some storms. And some of you might be facing into the midst of the deep void of uncertainty. To be candid with you, I just find it really ironic that I struggled to start working on this sermon because I was paralyzed in fear with the uncertainty of stepping forward to plant a new church. But see, the thing is, is no matter what you are facing into or in the midst of, we all must be reminded of who it is that we are dealing with. The fullness of the one that today we approach in prayer, receive absolution from, and will approach to receive communion. My brothers and sisters, your, mo- your boat may appear to be sinking. But always remember who it is that is on that boat with, boat with you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.